Are you an early stage founder looking to grow your SaaS? The SaaS Doc Founder Membership is a private community of ambitious SaaS founders where you can get a support network of peers, connect with like-minded founders around the globe, and learn proven strategies from industry experts to help you scale up your SaaS. If you want to get access to peer groups, investor meetings, mentor hours, and more to help you scale faster together, then visit sasdoccom forward slash founder hyphen membership to apply, or just go to sasdoccom and go up to the header menu and click on memberships. And even your application form, if it's right for you, mention the SAS Revolution show to apply for an exclusive discount. Find your SAS tribe and thrive with the SASDoc founder membership. Imagine that you could get access to the revenues you'll be generating in the next 12 months already today. What would it mean for you? Capchase helps fast-growing recurring revenue companies finance growth without taking on debt or dilution. Whether you want to invest in growth or R&D, Capchase turns your predictable revenue into growth capital today. Capchase has helped founders unlock hundreds of millions in financing to fuel their growth and on average extend their runway by eight months and spared upwards of 16% dilution. See how insanely easy it is by clicking the link in the show notes or go to capchase.com forward slash sastock to learn more. The best salespeople never really need to look for a job. <laughs> you know, if you're a top salesperson, you always have your ex-bosses like pinning you every quarter, being like, hey, are you happy? Like, I'm at this new gig. You should really think about joining me. Like, they don't really have to put a resume together. So if, you're, if your recruitment strategy is to post, you know, the, the role on your website and job boards, you're going to get the active candidates who tend to not be the best players. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth, and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Thank you so much um, for uh, attending today. Um, this is a, obviously a private session for the SaaStock founder members uh, and an audience with, uh, with Mark Roberge. And Dave, uh, I think uh, actually uh, Dave Graham posed the question uh, you, about uh, what has changed, if anything, since Mark uh, published the Sales Acceleration Formula, uh, which we thought was a great question and a great reason to uh, invite Mark to uh, discuss that a little bit. Um, and I don't want to like hog the mic. We want to use this as a great opportunity for you, uh, the SaaS founders, to ask Mark, uh, you know, uh, any questions that you have as you're building your SaaS companies, uh, you know, on that path to 10 million uh, in revenue. So. I'm going to invite Mark up. Hey, it's, it's up, Alex. How are you? Hey, yeah, yeah, good, good, good to see you. Um, uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I know we had a couple of issues there with Hopping, but glad we've uh, we've solved those. So, uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with my external <laughs> mic on Hopping. It works on Zoom and everything, but uh, I got to figure that out. Thanks once again for uh, giving up your time here uh, for the SaaS yeah, founder sure. movement. Yeah. So this is you, you know we're building a, a private community of. SaaS founders that are all on their journey to 10 million cool. uh, ARR and, you know, through support groups, global network, and then, you, you know, these education-based sessions uh, such as these. And uh, we ask our members, you, you know, about the topics that they want to hear. Uh, we've got many that are doing, you know, enterprise sales, you know, some that are doing SMB sales. Mm -hmm. HubSpot did both. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously, you, you no longer work uh, at HubSpot, but now you're investing in hundreds of SaaS companies uh, mm -hmm. or you've been working with hundreds of SaaS companies. Um, maybe we start. We just give a, a kind of up, uh, an update in terms of like what you're doing now, like your, your sort of yeah, yeah uh, sure. further, you know uh, recent credentials, and then we'll, we'll jump into the meat of it. Yeah, because the book. I know a lot of people are asking like, what's different since the book was written. So the book was written like in my final year at HubSpot, where you can go into the IPO, and it was largely um, the inspiration was if anyone had read Jill Conrath's uh, work, because she's an amazing writer and, and best-selling author. And we had breakfast and she's like, we should write a book together. And I'm like, Jill, I'm not a very good writer. Um, but uh, no, if you want to write a book together, that's great. And so we both wrote a chapter and she encouraged me to write my own book. And to be quite frank, like I had been spending my commute to and from HubSpot, which was about an hour with traffic, 
uh, just taking calls with entrepreneurs and they had all the same questions about how to hire salespeople and compensate them and, and run a sales process. And, and I basically gave the same answers and I would get notes like a week or two later being like, wow, that was really great. And here's what we didn't really worked well. So the contents of the book was pretty straightforward. It was really just my experiences in building the HubSpot sales team and how I've seen that be applicable to many other companies. Uh, since then, you know, I, I, after the IPO, I, I joined the faculty at Harvard Business School and uh, have been teaching their sales course uh, that we built out um, the last seven years. And then a couple in, through that process, I was like probably helping about a dozen startups every year on their building their sales channel. Um, and then um, and then uh, three years ago, a gentleman at Bessemer, a great VC firm uh, named Jay Poe, had an idea for the first VC firm that's running back by go-to-market executives. Um, so we went out and started asking people if they'd be interested and it just went viral. Uh, we have 250 um, investors, um, the CRO, CMO, COOs of like uh, Snowflake, Asana, LinkedIn, Dropbox, Salesforce, SAP, Oracle, uh, Twilio, um, you, you know, like pretty much most of the software unicorns, um, their executive team is our, our backers. Uh, we did uh, 11 investments in fund one and uh, we've done 10 investments in fund two. Um, we typically invest when companies are building their first sales team, you know, they have gotten through the product market fit. They're usually about 500,000 in us revenue. Um, and, um, and we engage with them and, and help them set up the foundation. Um, and what we believe is, is the best practice way using the, the network around us. So that's what we're up to. And that kind of is the underpinning of how things have changed since I wrote the book is, um, I would say I was like nine miles deep into HubSpot and like half a mile deep into other contexts. And now I would say like I, I just spend all my day, like literally I'll probably look at 12 sales teams a day. Right. So it's like for, for almost like, you know, eight years now. So it's just like, I, I guess I've just like amassed pretty, pretty like broad viewpoint of everything from large million dollar enterprise sales all the way down to product like growth, which is something I'm really excited about. Uh, too. So we can dive into any of those, any of those arenas. Yeah, it would, would be great to dive into the enterprise sales mm. and the, the, the product-led growth and SMB sales, as I think we've got that mix uh, nice. within the audience. Um, and, and just a question around your, your investing, uh, do you invest in US only or is it no. agnostic? Yep, geognostic. Yep. We, did a, we did a play that uh, came out of London, actually, um, and is now in the US as well, Sales Impact Academy. Um, yep. We invested in that. This spring. Um, and we've looked at a bunch out there. We did an Australian company. We just did a Argentinian company. Um, so yeah, we're, we're global. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, Mark, I think as, as, as you know, um, you were the first ever guest on the SaaS revolution podcast. Mm -hmm. And in preparation for that, I read your book, uh, you know, cover to cover. And then, you know, what is it? Six years later, uh, for this, I reread the book this weekend, yes. uh, managed to smash out hundred and it was good, a really good re refresher, right? So I kind of wanted to, uh, you know, touch on uh, some of the points of the formula and then I guess kind of like you pick your brains in terms of uh, from the companies that you're working with and then building these like sales teams today, what you're seeing, you, you know, that they're, that they're doing and any best practices that you can kind of share. Sure. Uh, and then obviously then we'll take the questions from the, the audience. So like, yeah. I guess- and I, I don't know, if okay, Alex, I'd encourage you, if you have questions, just put them in chat. Sure. We don't, it won't disturb yeah. me. And then we can, yeah. Alex can just get to him or we can get to him as we go, so. Yeah, yeah, there we go. And we got, we got like, one straight. You one can straight tee up Alex with the, with, the, with the opening ones. It's cool. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good, good stuff. Well, I'll, I'll get to Dave's question in a minute. I just want to sit on the, on the sales hiring formula um which kind of you know kicks off this is part of the the, the first part of the uh, the formula for the sales acceleration formula yeah uh, and you talk about building a recruitment agency within the company mm. now my thoughts are like yeah that that's great right uh, it, but are you, you you know if you're not venture backed or like you know what sort of size revenue do you have to be to be able to do that so like mm -hmm. for instance i mean we're, we're, we're not a SaaS company even though we've got some recurring revenue uh, but like for us in our context uh, you know, I would feel that we would be too small to build an agency. Um, but you, you know, what, what is the, the kind of the right size? Yeah. What, what size were you when you did that? Um, yeah, we were, um, so we were venture back. So, but let's just talk through like what it would look like without, and then you can do, you know, it's easier when you have some capital to, to think about it. Um, we just to answer your question directly. We were maybe 40 employees when we did it. Um, you know, 
I don't know, a couple million, maybe 5 million revenue, something like that. But um, so just to give you the background there, I had gotten to the size. We had been using like um, recruiters, agencies, uh, external, right? And um, and then I wanted to just, you know, I was kind of thinking about, should we keep doing that? Should we bring it in-house? And a, a very smart exec told me, you know, and I, I don't want to offend anyone, but like there's a large population of corporate recruiters who like work for a company and they they get paid like modestly and they're not really like aggressive like going after passive candidates they're kind of like posting your job ad on, on the website and indeed getting a bunch of applications resumes and then sending you resumes to see who you like that's kind of what they do and that doesn't work well in recruiting top talent especially on sales uh, and I often say, like, the best salespeople never really need to look for a job. <laughs> you know, if you're a top salesperson, you always have your ex-bosses, like, pinning you every quarter, being like, hey, are you happy? Like, I'm at this new gig. You should really think about joining me. Like, they don't really have to put a resume together. So if, you're, if your recruitment strategy is to post, you know, the, the role on your website and job boards, you're going to get the active candidates who tend to not be the best players. Right. And that made sense to me. Now, when you when you deal with more of an agency recruiter, we get these calls all the time. Right. They do cold call people. They reach out to you on LinkedIn. They reach out to you on email. They sell the job. The problem with an agency is you are one of 50 clients. So when they get a top salesperson to surface and be like, hey, you know what? I actually am in the market. Who does the agency send that top person to? They send it to the person that's paying the most money because they get paid on a percentage of the salary. So if you're paying the most money, then great, work with the agency. But um, if you're not, you're not gonna get the best talent. And furthermore, it's just like, you know, again, that agency is selling 50 different clients. So it's like, they can't be awesome at selling you, you know? And so that was the whole point was like, like set up an internal recruiting function, but don't do it like a, like a traditional corporate recruiting where they're just going to post ads and then get resumes, like go find agency people. And what that means is you have to pay them like an agency person at the time. And I don't know the numbers now, but at the time, I think a typical internal corporate recruiter in the startup ecosystem here in Boston would be paid 80,000 a year versus an agency recruiter would be paid 75,000 base with, with 75,000 commission with upside if they do a better job in recruiting. So that was really all I did. And I found a woman um, that was at an agency thinking about starting her own agency. And I was like, just do it here at HubSpot. And she was like, well, what do you mean? And I'm like, you know, you, I'll pay you 75 base, 75 commission or whatever it was. And then we'll hire more people as we scale and you can pay them like agency recruiters and you just do it within HubSpot and you have one client. And so that was the only difference. So to your point, Alex, like, Okay, fine. You're not venture backed, but you need to find people. So you have like a couple of choices. One, you can use zero recruiters and just do it on your own, which is fine. If you've got the time, I don't think that's crazy. But if you are going to use recruiters, you can use an agency where you're going to pay 20% of their salary to them, which is might be have, what you have to do in a bootstrap situation and just hope that you work with a smaller agency that isn't going to be overly competitive with other clients. Um, or you can hire someone internally if you're really going to hire a lot of people this year. I would say like 10 plus. Um, but, you know, hopefully that makes sense for like the, the software startups here is that that's where that thinking happened. It worked really well for us. Awesome. Uh, I'm going to take Dave's, uh, Dave Graham's yeah. question. Dave, uh, CEO, CMAT Software. Thanks for putting the first question out there to Mark. Uh, so did your sales team only ever call inbound leads and never mm -hmm. do any mm -hmm. cold calls? Uh, and, then, yeah. and then what did they do to fill the gaps if they didn't have enough leads yeah. coming from us? Yeah, that's a good question, Dave. In fact, like if you, they still teach the HubSpot case at HBS, at Harvard Business School, Jill Avery and a bunch of other authors wrote that a long time ago. They won a bunch of awards for it, actually. It's a bestseller case. And they teach it in the first year required marketing curriculum. Um, and that's what the case is about. Your question, Dave, where it's like, and this is a real story. It was like 2009, I think. When up until that point, we only had sold inbound leads. We had scaled to set and only sold inbound leads. And I was making a case to Brian and Darmesh. My team needs to start cold calling. 
And they were like, you're crazy. Like we are an inbound marketing company. Like the minute we start cold calling, it like contradicts everything we're about. It's going to kill our brand. And I was like, yeah, but you don't understand my perspective. Like I stand up in front of the board every year and they're like, you're going to go from 20 million to 40 million this year. And I have to do that. And what happens if marketing messes up one month and there's no leads? I'm going to get fired. Like this, the board doesn't care. So I need more control. Like I, I don't think, I hope that cold calling isn't the primary vehicle of customer acquisition, but I need a backup plan if the inbound leads go sideways. And so they were like, all right, fine. Like we'll run a test for two months. But if we see anything on Twitter about like HubSpot's like a fake, like I just got a cold call, then we're shutting it down. And we never did. Like we, you know, so basically I did specialize a team. Um, So we kept the inbound team and we sent all of our inbound leads directly to an account executive, which I, I like to do a lot. I don't see it. I see a lot of inbound leads sent to SDRs. I don't like that um, because uh, it's, you know, usually a 22 year old experienced salesperson dealing with your best leads. It's very hard to operationalize an account executive to call those correctly, but I think outside of the first lead, when it comes in and you want to call them within five minutes, I do think an account executive can be disciplined to carve out a third of their day to be prospecting on the leads that they have. And that's rarely done in industry, but I do think that's an opportunity if you can, you can have the right management and leadership to do that. In the early days, we specialized a cold calling team, which is also, I think, rarely done and I think was critical because when you have an account executive or let's say an SDR, because we did use SDRs to cold call there. If you have an SDR that gets inbound leads and has to cold call, they're never going to cold call. They're just going to like, they're just going to like do, you know, get the inbound leads and they'll never get to the cold calling. If you have an account executive who gets appointments from inbound leads and appointments from cold calls, they're never going to sell the appointments from cold calls. They're just really hard. The inbound lead appointments are much more warmed up. So I had to specialize a team so that they had to figure it out. And we used a higher ratio of SDRs to reps. I think we used a three SDRs to two account executive ratio in there. And we got it to work. And like three years later, I would say uh, 40% of our revenue came from inbound leads. Actually, 40% came from a partner channel, which was interesting. And 20% came from the cold calling. So it all, it all kind of um, you know, worked nicely. And then the final point of your question, Dave, is, you know, supplementing. And that's something that you, it's really tricky because like you never want a salesperson to feel dependent on something to hit their number. And if you tell a salesperson, you're going to get a bunch of inbound leads and then you get, you get your number, you're not setting up that dependence. So even for salespeople who are on the inbound team, um, I always encourage, like really encourage those teams to say, you're going to get to roughly 70 to 80% of your number from your inbound leads. Some months marketing will do great and you'll get all the way there. Other months marketing will do bad and you only get halfway there. And you're expected to supplement that by getting 20 to 30% of your number from your old outreach. And an outreach from an account executive is different than the outreach that an SDR would do. It's much more strategic. Like an SDR is running through their outreach and sales loft, like cadences and, and, and sequences. <clears throat> but a, an account executive is like spending potentially 20 or 30 minutes crafting an extremely personalized note or report or something that they're going to send to an executive. Or they might even dip into, this is kind of Adam's question here. They might, one of the areas that we don't tap into enough is our closed loss from like six months ago. That's gold. I mean, if you're a good sales team, you're closing, what, 20 to 30% of your sales opportunities every quarter? That means 70 to 80% are closed lost. And, and we're not going back to them that often, like six to nine months later, and that's gold. So that's a good example of where they can, they can supplement it. On, on, just on that point, then on the closing yeah. loss, do you, do you have any data to share 
uh, when your sales team's going back to those yeah. uh, leads, like what were they converting on, on, on those? I never looked at it, but I would guess if we were converting opportunities that were created new, like from a fresh account, if we were converted them like 30% of the time to a sale, I would say opportunities that were created from a closed lost outreach where it's like, oh yeah, actually we are interested now. I would say it was more like 50% close rate because they were, they were just, they already knew what was happening. Like they're, oh yeah, we, we looked at that eight months ago. The timing wasn't right, but now is a better time to look at it. And, and the close rate was higher. So that, that's an opportunity that I don't think a lot of folks are digging into. Yeah. I, I guess that sort of answers Adam's question. So Adam, go I guess so. Had reactivated yeah. registered users after relaunch. I think he's more like a product-led growth. If you want to come back to us, Adam, with a little more context there, um, if that's like a PLG model, we can do that but, and then come back to you. Yeah. On, on, on the PLG stuff, yeah. so actually, so in 2015, it was probably see more sales-led growth, marketing-led growth companies, and then PLG is now the soup du jour uh, as stuff, uh, you, you know, in, in the last sort of year or two. Uh, for for SaaS companies, yeah, um, so how has the either like the formula changed uh, in your mind with regards to kind of PLG or what are you, you, oh, you know yeah. what what are really kind of the best practices for a PLG company for uh, yeah. for sales? Adam loves PLG, by the way. I love it. <clears throat> I love it. Like that's the theme I'm most excited about. We have a bunch of investment themes, but I I'm very excited about trying to bet on the PLG attacker in every category. Um, let me let me hold that for one second, Alex, because Jack. Jacques has a uh, yeah. quick fall. How would you get back to close lost? Um, so it's pretty easy, Jacques. Um, you you basically, uh, what's nice about close lost is you've typically accumulated a lot of um, very specific information about the account in terms of like, you know, what their pain was, who, what their team looks like, what their needs were, you know, et cetera. So you really just lob back a summary of that. You know, it might be something, if I would go channel like the HubSpot thing, it would be like, Hey, Jacques, uh, you know, I know we had a really great conversation back in Q1 of last year. The timing wasn't right. Um, you had mentioned at the time that um, you you all were struggling because a lot of, you know, a, a good chunk of your demand gen had been done through in-person events. And you're really struggling in a post-COVID environment around demand generation. And you were looking for some alternatives uh, and that the inbound lead flow had, was a high converter for you, but it was really trickling. And you're trying to figure out a strategy on how to up-level that a bit. Um, and I know like you were going through some transitions on your website and your marketing team at the time. I'm just curious is, have you fixed your demand gen issues or is there something we should, we should get back to on that conversation? Something like that, Jock. That's the difference with, with like going after closed losses. You have tremendous personal context that you can lean into and try to entice them. Um, so let's, let's switch over to your question, Alex, PLG. Wow. I mean, yes, Google PLG or product like growth folks. If you're not familiar, let me just try to like, Define it. I mean, it's really coming out of like freemium to some degree. It just essentially means that the customer has an opportunity to extract value. The way I define it is the customer can extract value from your product before they buy. Okay. So like we've been doing, arguably we've been doing this with free trials in a lot of PLG situations like a Calendly or a Zoom or a Slack. Um, you can often like use this product for quite a long time without buying it. Right. They're just looking for you to trump trip over some sort of consumption um, uh, metric. And, um, you know, I, I personally believe that it is a a business model and go to market go to market model disruption that can be as impactful to the ecosystem that SaaS was in the last two decades. I, not not quite as impactful because I do think that SaaS was applicable to almost all software sectors and plg certainly is not um for plg to work there needs to be sort of like a low time and effort to retainable value use case like you know like you literally do something that takes a minute or two and in a minute or two you get value that's recurring right like dropbox is like boom click your files are backed up slack you know it's a little more time but it's like you and i can jump on a slack alex and like we could be communicating like through that medium Calendly, I can set that up in, in a minute with my calendar. And Alex, you can have my calendar and book something. Like these are all great examples of like a low time and effort to value. Workday, no. Like we're managing your, your entire company's like HR stack and payroll. Like that's not PLG. You know what I mean? So, so it's not as applicable for the categories where it is applicable. That's critical. We're still, this is exciting 
because we're still writing a playbook on this. So a couple examples is like um, if you take a like like a, a sales team that's more like a, a an MQL driven sales team that's used to like getting inbound leads, which are people who are requesting demos or downloaded eBooks. And then you suddenly introduce a PLG playbook where you build this free product and you're going to have your sales team call into it. That sales team will ruin PLG. They will ruin, ruin PLG because the minute someone downloads the product, they're going to call them, do discovery, give them a demo and ask them to buy the product. And that's not PLG. PLG is like they got into the product and they have a particular goal in mind and they want to see that that works. And if it works, they'll consider buying it. Right. Or they'll just use it until they trip a wire and see enough value to buy it. So your first call, just an example, is you know, you have to either choose between letting the person just do their thing humanistically, or you can call them and almost be CSM first, where you're like, hey Alex, like I noticed you downloaded, you know, our free product. Um, and instead of saying like you do discover like what did you want to do, what are you trying to solve, et cetera, but instead of flipping from there to a demo and then try to get them to buy, you flip to, here's how you do that. Let's set it up, give it a shot for a few days and I'll check in with you. So you're kind of CSM first. And then you let the product kind of like lead the value creation and then lead into the sale. The other thing that's critical, like tactically there is the compensation model. And I talked about this at Saster last week where most sales compensation models are uh, born out of the 1980s where you're paid more for the revenue, the first revenue from an account and less for the expansion revenue. And in the 80s, that made sense. It's really hard to open a door and get a million dollar software sale in there. And a lot easier to sell them $100,000 more stuff a year later when you have a relationship. But these days, when the buyers can download the stuff and start using it with two people, even though they have a thousand employees and all a thousand employees could use it, they just want to start with two people. And if it works, they'll expand to a thousand people. But if you're paying your salespeople more for the first revenue from an account, then they get on the phone with the, the prospect and the prospect's like, yeah, I've been using your product. I love it. And I would consider a enterprise uh, agreement with you all. And in fact, what I'd love to do is I'd like to just try the product out with this team of six people. And if that goes well, I will roll it out to my thousand employees. And the salesperson's like, no. And they say no, because like, that's how they're paid, right? They, they're not, they're not, they're going to get a lot less money. And so you really should consider, and I use this at HubSpot, and I've used this for a lot of our portfolio company, paying those hunting reps 20% more for follow-on expansion revenue. And now they're aligned with a the buyer. They're like, yeah, I, yeah, fine. You want to use it on six accounts? Perfect. Use it on six accounts. And then I'll check in with you next quarter or next month, and we'll see if we roll it out to the next team. And they're incented to do that. And um, I'm not trying to turn the hunter into a CSM. I'm just trying to get that rep to be aligned with how the buyer wants to buy and also to set really good expectations and be really honest about everything that needs to be done, like what the product does and how to set it up so that that first pilot goes well and they get the expansion. But go ahead, Alex. Yeah, well, there's a couple of tying questions uh, onto that. I'll, I'll take Eve's, uh, Eve Birkin's uh, one first. Um, and because we're talking about sales compensation. So yeah. what about being really crazy uh, and stop paying salespeople based on their sales. Doesn't it solve a lot of issues? Yeah. Up to you to find a model that makes them motivated. Yeah, who and I, about I, that? I, Daniel Pink wrote yeah. about that. Go ahead, Alex. Sorry, I cut you off. You know, I was going to say, I a few years ago, I, I met a, another a Belgian founder, Eve, so yeah. he's, he's from Belgium, uh, who wasn't paying his sales team any commission. Mm -hmm. He just paid them more, like, you know, paid them a good salary. And they were mm -hmm. kind of bought into that. And I did think he was really crazy. But uh, am I wrong? Uh, did it work? I don't know. Well, actually, yeah. I mean, they, they scaled past 10 million in revenue. I know that. Okay, that's cool. I haven't been following them. So I, I had, I've seen it attempted in short terms without a lot of success. And I don't know if it's like, I don't know why. Like Daniel Pink wrote about it in To Sell as Human, I believe, like 10 years ago. And it's interesting. I mean, you would think logically with the moves here, like why, why are like engineers not paid on commission and marketing's not paid on commission, CSMs are not paid on commission, support people aren't paid on commission. It's just harder to like measure like their their individual contribution versus sales. And I'm trying to think like 
The short is, is a great question. Um, there's possibly some potential in there and I, I'd have to think about like where, um, where the starting point would be on that. Probably something very mission driven and altruistic and societal, you know, driven where it would work, where the true motivations and attraction of these people is not necessarily the money, but like really the mission of the company, it would work. But for some reason, all the attempts I've seen have not. And I'm trying, I think what's happening there is that culture and plan probably is not attracting the best salespeople, unfortunately. You know, unfortunately, I think the people, if we just measure best salespeople as people who go out and acquire the most customers that are good customers for you in a time period, those people are going to be attracted to a coin operated like leveraged compensation plan, not a fixed salary. I think I'll that's why it's not working, you know? I'll, I'll have to uh, try and remember the name of this uh, this Belgian mm-hmm. SaaS company. It had team in its name, but I'll come back to the yeah, yeah. The, the, the group on, on that one and uh, um, we'll, we'll find out how they're doing it. Yeah. Um, uh, Dave Graham, uh, back to Dave. So he's got uh, an enterprise-wide product, um, but he's looking at, you, you know, bringing PLG, uh, I think, Ooh. you know, in, into the company uh, and it also studying HubSpot. But yeah. like, you know, how, how do you do that if, if you, if it's not PLG? I know. PLG? All right. So first we got to figure out if it's possible and then, oh my gosh, trying to introduce it into a company. I got a playbook for you, but like, it's hard. We're, we're, we're doing a little bit at Sendoso now um, and it's going pretty well, but like, I'll tell you why it's hard. It's kind of like why the on-premise companies like SAP and Siebel trying to introduce SaaS, right? All the innovators dilemma, like challenges with it. Um, but first off, let's talk about like, well, what makes something um, PLG friendly? Okay. So the first one is that low time and effort to retainable value. Okay. So workday is not low time and effort. Like, this is not a category you can go after. It's like, you can't click a button and within five minutes have all your like employees, like, on payroll and the HR system set up and whatever, right? So there's certain categories where it doesn't work. The retainable value is important because like, look at website grader, like our early product. That was not, it was a little bit PLG, but it just wasn't as effective because it wasn't retainable value. If, if you weren't familiar with our website grader product, um, basically what it did, Darmesh built it like in the early days. And it was just like, you, you go to websitegrader.com, you put in your URL, and within 30 seconds, it spit out a five-page report about your how to optimize your website for SEO. And it's like, it, it, at the time, people were spending like $10,000 for like these SEO consultants to do this report, but it was actually all programmatic. And so huge value, like low time and effort to value, but it wasn't retainable value because once people had the report, it was like, there was no reason to come back every day. Like it was the same freaking report, you know? So... So like Calendly, beautiful. Like, yeah, I mean, I click a button, it syncs with my calendar, and now I include it in my signature, and I just say book a meeting here, and that's forever. Slack, forever. Dropbox, forever. You know, like, so so you have to look for that. And virality is not critical, but it helps. Calendly has wonderful organic virality, right? It's like I see it, I'm like, wow, that was a cool app. I should download that. DocuSign has re- wonderful organic virality. Hey, sign my document. Wow, that was a really cool experience. Let me do that too, right? Um, Dropbox, I don't know. They kind of, they, their natural backup use case is not amazing virality. Sharing documents is, which they kind of got. And they've tried with their, their paper products and other products. Um, Hello Sign, they purchased. Like, um, they're trying to get more use cases in virality. Um, but, you know, it's nice, but it's not necessary. Um, I don't know if like Slack, has a lot of like cross company boundary virality. Like I, I, there's probably, there's some situations like Alex and I can get on a Slack channel together, but most of Slack's virality is occurring within the company, which is limited, right? So we have to, and, and also like a big horizontal market is important. Like if you're selling to like, I don't know, like governments, I don't know if PLG is gonna work that well. Like there's just not that many of them. It's like, you know, it's so, so that, 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 so let's look at it from that filter first, Dave. Is it possible? Now, 
you need to introduce PLG into an existing company. That is hard because it's going to cause your sales to go down for at least a quarter. And that's hard to swallow. So what's happened here, like, let's say, um, let's just take HubSpot again. And let's say that we were introducing PLG to the marketing product. And we were, we actually tried to do this. We were at uh, 10 million in revenue and we started, you know, we, we all went to MIT with Drew and we were in touch with them early over at Dropbox. And we were very jealous of like the, the crazy motion that they built there. And Dharmesh was like, we have to do this. We have to do this too. So we introduced like a, a free product with a $50 upgrade and it bombed. And the reason why it bombed, well, first off, it wasn't possible in the marketing product because there was no low, low time and effort to retainable value use case. It was like blog for two months and your leads will go up. That's not low time and effort to value, right? So we didn't have it, but even if it did, like you're, you're hesitant to put enough value in the free product for it to be valuable because you don't want to cannibalize your $10 million install base. Because if you actually built, if you had, if you built the free product that you would have built from scratch, a lot of your install base is going to downgrade. And not a lot of companies are willing to take on that cannibalization. So what you sort of have to do is you have to almost have this, like, I don't want to say secret project, but it's like a separate project where you're funneling a certain amount of traffic or even stand up some like Facebook, Instagram ad that's sent to a landing page and just start having like start experimenting with it, start sending users in, see how many people, you know, sign up to the product, see how many people activate the product, see how many people become mouse, wows and dows, you know, and just like, and just experiment, experiment, experiment until you're confident that that works. Then you have to disrupt your business. <laughs> you have to actually roll that out to all of your lead flow and your leads are, your, your revenue is likely going to go down because some of your customers will downgrade to the free or cheaper product and your salespeople productivity, salesperson productivity will go down because a lot of the leads they typically sold a, a reasonable amount to are now going to go to the free product and buy a cheaper amount. So then you're like, why should I do that? Well, if you don't do it to your business, someone else will, they will. You're, you're in a big disruptive risk. So you'll have to, you'll, that's how you have to do it. And because of the, the, the revenue will probably go down for a quarter. You almost have to time it right after a fundraise. If you're in a venture cycle to give yourself the 12 to 18 months necessary to recover from that pivot. Okay. And if you're not in a venture cycle, then you just have to prepare for being off quarter. So I wrote an article on the stage two website on product led growth and all the details. I teach a class on it at Harvard. Um, so if you want to dig into more details than my three minute ramble, but hopefully Dave, that gets you a little bit of a, uh, a perspective. The reason why we're successful with that HubSpot is our sort of separate secret project skunk work was the CRM, right? So we were just a marketing software company and we had this clean slate with the sales tech stack with the CRM. And that happened to have a lot of use cases that were low time and effort to value, namely downloading a Chrome extension so that salespeople could see all the people that were emailing them and everything about them. It was initially called Sidekick. So we had this beautiful little sandbox to play in and that's how we were able to succeed with it. And we use that to disrupt the rest of the business over the years. Good three minute ramble. Uh, <laughs> Maybe uh, more, but yeah, no, I think hopefully that was a uh, helpful Dave. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was. Uh, um, and Mark, you mentioned it a couple of times about me and you on a Slack channel. Like, if you don't mind, I'm happy to set that up whenever. Um, but, uh, <laughs> nice. um, I, I'm going to go back to an earlier question. And so I didn't forget Jean-Louis uh, Bernard uh, here. So um, w when he was speaking earlier, but he, he mentions about enterprise sales. Uh, so their, their ticket is, you know, 100K plus ACV. Um, yeah. When you think that the first outbound conversation is already a strategic one, and should require an AE rather than an SDR for outbound. Definitely, definitely. So that, like once you're dealing with 100K plus, your PLG isn't the model, MQL to SDR team is not the model. It's account-based marketing and account-based selling, right? So you look at the work of Terminus and, um, you know, the, the, you know, Sixth Sense and, you know, these account-based marketing, account-based selling folks, right? So in this case, it's like, you know, there's lots of different implementations of them, but like, as an example, we might have an account executive and SDR as a team. Okay. And they are assigned these 10 accounts and we're going to, the, the two of them are going to go after this one account first, right? So we're going to, we're going to go after, you know, uh, we're going to go after, 
like Thermo Fisher. Okay, a big a big account. So what we're going to do is um, the the SDR is going to find a hundred contacts at Thermo Fisher that are are part of typically part of the decision making unit of our product, right? So if we were selling HubSpot, it would be I think there's like two hundred business units in Thermo Fisher. So all the CMOs and VPs of marketing of those, and even the director of marketing. And so they would run a sequence against all those like high volume, like, you know, 10, con- 10, 10 attempts over a three week period um, against those, those mid-level executives. The, the account executive is doing much more strategic prospecting into the executive team. That is like high value, super personalized. Okay. So this is just an example. And this is a very extreme example, but it, it proves the point. Um, one of my buddies, an extremely successful salesperson, Adobe, Salesforce, et cetera, a big million dollar rep. And he like, he had moved over, he got moved over to Salesforce. And um, this was like six years ago, I was playing golf with him. So he, he unfortunately got signed the, the Toys R Us account, which like obviously they went in a business. But at the time they were, they were still in business. And um, I was like, that's crazy. Like, how do you? how do you get into Toys R Us? Cause I know they're an Oracle shop and you're selling for Salesforce and the Salesforce has no, no like um, implementations there. And he's like, I'm not going to call them <laughs> for like two months. I'm like, what? You're not going to call him. He's like, no, I'm spending all day buying stuff from Toys R Us. He's like, all I do is I go on and I go, I go on the website. I, I look at their ads. I and then I check, I switch browsers to see if they remember who I am. And I put stuff in the cart and I see if I log in over here, do they remember the cart and do they change the way that they're marketing to me based on what's in my cart? And then I check out and I see if they upsell me. Then I download the mobile app and I see if that's updated. I take screenshots of everything. And then I, I put together a 50 page um, like paper, like physical paper brochure. And I mailed it to the 50 executives at Toys R Us. He's like, I had a, a meeting a week later with the whole executive team. I mean, I was like an internal, like the best consult that they've ever met on the, like um, how well they were doing on the personalization front on their digital strategy. So, so that, that's the point is like, you know, hopefully that's an interesting story that like, that's an extreme version, but that, that's how it's different is you got an SDR and an AE. The SDR is doing the high volume yet personalized hits on the mid-manager team and the, the salesperson's doing that very strategic personalized lobs in to get into uh at the executive level awesome and, and I, I guess from these large enterprise deals uh, back to uh, uh sort of plg here but uh, subhanjan saka from pitchlink he asks what do you think about a longer full featured trial period say 90 days because what is he doing again? What is his full featured ninety day trial? So Benjamin, what did you drop in the um, in the chat? It's, it's okay. Yeah, you can put it in while I'm talking yeah. here. Um, hmm, it's a long time. I'm trying to think what to say. I mean, you're kind of reminding me of almost like what we just typically associate with more of like a proof of concept. So you're buying buyer engagement SaaS, okay? Um, like you're you're kind of flirting with like more proof of concept land. 90 days, you know what I mean? So, um, uh, and I'm assuming like, if this is like, you're dropping in them humanistically, they've never talked to anyone and they're trying this thing for 90 days. I don't know. It's hard for me to think why that wouldn't be seven days or 30 days. Like what, what is it? If there's just a long time that they have to do it, I feel like we need people involved. And if we need people involved, we're probably more in a proof of concept. And we're, if, in a, if we're in a proof of concept, then I, I'm kind of approaching that pretty differently. You know, I'm kind of saying like, okay, let's make sure we've done all the discovery. Let's make sure we've built out the business case. Let's make sure we've done the ROI analysis, make sure that we have everybody on the decision-making unit involved. And let's make sure we have really clear definitions of what the heck we're trying to get visibility into during this proof of concept. I'm fine with a 90 day proof of concept, but I just want to make sure like, what is success? What is failure? If success happens, we have a deal. Can you sign a lever intent on that or whatever? You know what I mean? Like, if we're going through that much work, I may even want to charge for the proof of concept. Like, um, I'm just handling that differently. So I don't, I don't know. Like, we're over a chat here, um, but, but like, 
Um, if, if there's not humans involved, I question why it needs to be 90 days. And if there are humans involved, I, I probably pro approach this more like a, a little bit of like a, a traditional proof of concept. The God out. Awesome. Thanks. I feel like we've got time for one or two more questions. Mm -hmm. uh, whilst we await another question, um, if we have one from uh, the, the founders that are here. Um, I know someone said way back when the partner channel, someone want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That know. was Jack, actually. Yeah, but but Alex, if you if you have something that you're really No, 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 no. Let's go. In. It's yeah. a good one. Let's, okay. let's go on the partner channel. Yeah, partners, partners is interesting, right? Like, so if we back up for a second, I feel like partners initially is a is a trap for some of the early stage folks. And the, I know why it happens. It's because like you're a founder, CEO, maybe you have more of a product engineering background. And so it starts working. You're doing founder selling, stuff starts working. So you're like, okay, now we have to really scale sales. We, we raise a series A and we're ready to go. They're, and they're looking at two options, hire salespeople who are expensive and scary and now it's gonna change your culture. Or holy cow, like Oracle has this huge sales team our product is, is uh, additive to their whole product landscape. Why don't we just sell through them? Then I don't have to pay for salespeople and I don't have to change my culture and they already know how to sell. And so they lean into that. And it sounds brilliant, but it doesn't work. <laughs> and the reason why it doesn't work is a, a lot of reasons. First off, usually at that stage, at the founder selling transition stage, you you actually don't know how to codify your sales process. You don't know how to like, you don't have what I call go to market fit. You have product market fit. Like if you put, if you're able to sell a hundred people on your product, it works and delivers value and they retain, but you don't know how to like train a salesperson, how to sell your product, like train a hundred salespeople how to sell your product. That's going to take some, some learning loops, just like you did with the product market fit. And to try to do that learning, with a salesperson that doesn't even work for you, that works in a different company, you're just not set up for success. So even if channel is a long-term scale goal for you, you need to have a temporary direct team to figure out how to sell. And then you can train the channel. The other reason why it fails is Oracle doesn't care about your product, <laughs> even if it's like a gap. Like, and you need to make them care at two levels. You need to make the executive team care to let you in. And then you need to get the salesperson to care to learn how to sell it. Because those salespeople are making their quota without your product. And they're going to keep doing that, even if the executive team say to sell your product. So you have to incentivize at both levels. This happened with us at Salesforce before they went into marketing cloud. We got wind that Benioff at the executive level, they were losing a lot of deals on CRM because their salespeople weren't good about talking about marketing. Like all their prospects were like, yeah, the CRM sounds cool, but like my biggest problem is not managing my opportunities. My biggest problem is filling the CRM. And they didn't, they couldn't talk about modern marketing and they heard about us in the early days. And like, those folks know, seem like they know what they're doing. Why don't we um, tell our salespeople that if they sell HubSpot, we will actually give them quota relief in the same way that if they sold the Salesforce product. And so suddenly we, we understood the pain at the executive level and aligned with it. And then they incentivize the frontline reps. So that's what it takes to enable a channel. Okay. So, so that, and that, that kind of gets into like, I, that was very much like a startup story. Um, you know, the, the thing about the HubSpot channel that was unique was uh, a lot of the channels were like system integrators, that kind of stuff. A third of our demand gen, a third of our inbound leads were people who were not wanting to be customers, but wanted to be resellers. They were web designers, SEO consultants, PR firms. And anytime they ended up on a direct rep uh, in their CRM, the direct rep would be, come over and be like, Mark, holy cow, I just talked to this agency. They have 100 clients and they want to put them all onto HubSpot. I'm going to make my whole annual quota in one week. This is crazy. And it never happened because they didn't understand how to like mobilize that agency. And it wasn't until Pete Caputo, one of my early hires and a great executive for us, had specialized a team on that and trained a salesperson, a channel salesperson, which agencies are good, which ones are not, how to qualify them, how to teach them how to sell inbound marketing in HubSpot and how to teach them to make their customers successful on inbound marketing in HubSpot. That, that channel started to go 
really well. And like I said earlier, it was 40% of our revenue when I left around the IPO. Um, and it was unique. You know, each one of those channel reps had like 20, 30 agencies they worked with and they, they got to their number without any demand gen. They literally, these agencies would be in like Idaho and Montana and Mississippi and in like, you know, random pockets of the US and they'd be signing up five or six customers a year and making good money for themselves. And five or six customers a year per per agency times 30 agencies was a really healthy productivity for our reps. So that's how our, our channel unfolded. And those are some of like the, the gotchas and best practices on channel that I see. Um, just conscious of time, Mark, we've, yeah. got, we've got three minute. Yeah. Don't know, do you, are you able to answer Dave's final question in three minutes? The attribution, yeah. It's tough, Dave. Um, because attribution, it's kind of like, yeah, when it's transactional, it's a lot easier. You can do like first touch attribution on transaction. If you have like a less than 60 day sales cycle, you can do first touch attribution, which means um, if a SDR cold called into account and they booked a meeting and then a week later that account downloads an ebook, that counts as the cold calling attribution, not the marketing and vice versa. If some account comes in and downloads an ebook and then some SDR calls them and gets an, a meeting, that's a marketing uh, attribute contributed. So you can do first touch attribution and that, that attribution, that first touch expires after 60 days of no opportunity and it resets the clock. It gets more complicated in the, the ABM model that we talked about, um, where it's like, if, if like Thermo Fisher, someone at Thermo Fisher comes in and downloads an ebook, the last thing you wanna do is credit that entire account to marketing because no SDRs are gonna cold call in there and you want the SDRs cold calling in there. So in the ABM model, um, there, there are some sophisticated models that I think grow out of like the TV industry on like assigning credits to like who, like the TV ad agency, like where you assign credits to different influencers, you get certain points for all the meetings. That's pretty cool. But I also see that like people are call, almost creating small cross-functional teams in the larger accounts where it's like you have part of a marketer, an SDR, an account executive, and it's just like, go open this account. I don't care who gets credit. You'll all get credit. But just go do your thing and work together on that. So that in my two minute answer, Dave, but attribution gets super tricky when you get to bigger accounts. Awesome. Well, uh, I think that's uh, that's perfect. Make that the last question. Um, Mark, thank you so much. So let's show our appreciation for Mark uh, in, in the chat. Um, it's been a, a fantastic session. I, I always appreciate so much when you give up your time uh, to you share the Aspot community. Um, so, uh, thanks so much. Um, it, it's been great. I've got 12 months to work on you to get you to Dublin for October. Uh, next there you year. go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's, let's work on those dates and hopefully we're, we'll, we'll, we'll hopefully yeah, work hopefully it out. The world is healthy then. And I'd love to come out. I haven't been to Dublin in like five or six years and I love That's it. Out it. Well, uh, I'll, I'll buy you a pint of Guinness and I'm sure everybody Beautiful. else here will do as Beautiful. well. Thanks so much, Mark. Have a great day. All right. Uh, right. and, uh, um, everybody else, if you enjoyed this session, um, you know, uh, please drop your feedback in circle and or share the SaaS.founder founder membership uh, on social media as a favor. And thanks so much. We'll see you at the next one. Mark, all the best. Thanks, Everybody everyone. Else. Good luck. Thanks. Great Good questions. Talk later. to you soon. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world.